I don't have the mental capacity to think this critically right now. And I know you're probably going to be right. And I'm not ready. I'm not ready to change my long held beliefs. I have all my biases yelling at me and I'm pissed at Howard. Do you have a similar reaction? No. <laughs> This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Yelly. The bankrupt trucking company? Yelly? (laughs) Yelly. Or one of the greatest hip-hop artists between 1998 and 2003. If you're mispronouncing his name with a, a Y instead of an N, or what are we talking about here? Or Yelly Furtado. <laughs> Shout out Canada. Oh, man. I want to dive right in. There's some meat on the bone this week. And it's fun stuff from really smart people. It's not just us making fun of Kathy Wood. Is that even possible? Let's try it. Let's go for I it. I mean, we, we could do that, too. All right. Morgan Housel had an awesome piece this week and like all Morgan's stuff, it's so like quotable and simple and really just makes you think it's called a few laws of getting rich. Ooh, it's good stuff. There's some really good stuff. My favorite piece. And there's like, it's like an ice cream shop. I have so many favorite things in this, but my favorite piece is uh, when he talks about, there's no way to manage wealth and kids. And he wait, quotes wait, Charlie. Wait, hold Hunter. on, hold on. Let me, can I pause you for a moment? Yeah. Can we step back? Because the name of this is A Few Laws of Getting Rich, but it's really about how painful it is to be rich. I know. I thought the title was funny. The, yeah. That's a good... And, and it, it starts with the first sentence is, there are 13 divorces among the 10 richest men in the world. Just to give you a sense for... That sets the whole tone. You can continue. Go ahead. Because I love what you're about to say. Charlie Munger was once asked by one of his friends if leaving kids, his kids a bunch of money would ruin their drive and ambition. And he said, of course it will, but you still have to do it. And the friend says, why? Because if you don't give them the money, they'll hate you. So like, <laughs> it's it classic Charlie Munger. It's 100% <laughs> true. Like, yeah. You cannot be like, no, you, this doesn't. I know that, uh, you know, we're one of the richest families in the world, but you're going to earn it all on your own. No, you, your kids are just in a bad spot. It's not a great place to raise kids if you're super wealthy. Yeah. He's a. A more commodity and even practical version of Buffett, which is why he's worth like two billion, and Buffett's worth whatever he's worth, like a hundred billion or whatever it is, because he yeah sells his stuff and does things as well. He also like has a yacht and like yeah, he a windowless dorm money yeah. every now and then. Exactly, I love that one though. That one stuck out. The whole piece isn't really about. It's more about being rich and some of the pros and cons of that. So I think the way I want to handle it is not really to give an overview, but just drop a few more quotes that I thought were fun that speak to the contradictory nature of wealth, investing, you name it, that make this such an interesting topic for me and you, but also make this such an impossible topic for the majority of humans. He talks about this drive and obsession to get to work hard, to save, to build wealth. And then when it comes time to spend it, here's what he says. That obsession is filled by stress and anxiety. It often shows up in career career ambition, aggressive investing, and type A motivation. 
Then once they become rich, they realize that they can't let go of the stress. It's ingrained in their identity. Like, so this one, another one that jumped off the page, I see this happen with so many people who are this drive to get whatever, and then they become the partner or the senior vice president or the C-level exec. And that's their t- that was like the only goal they ever had spelled out in their post-college life. They get there and they don't know what to do because that's the person they are now is their career. It's kind of a different version of, you know, that old adage of uh, what got you here won't get you there. Mm-hmm. And it usually, usually when it's brought up, it's meant to represent like you had certain skill sets that allowed you to get to this title in the organization in order to get to the next title in the organization. It's new skill sets. Like it's usually brought up that way. But I think in this context, it's also kind of like the, the stuff, the attributes, the skill sets, the drive, all that stuff that allowed you to get wealthy is a detriment, potentially, potential detriment once you're there. Uh, I think that's also true. It's just like what allows you to build wealth is different than maintaining it in general. Yep. Like those are different things too. Yeah. I, the anxiety piece, I think is a, it feels so real. Like I could feel it when I read these words. Resonates so much with me because um, the retirement age folks I talk to that have a large retirement account are the ones that struggle so mightily to spend it. And the ones that have done a good job spending it don't have a large retirement (laughs) account. But it's like, guys, you got this backwards and it's so ingrained in their being at this point that it just kind of is what it is. You're going to have these people who don't spend it and pass down a massive inheritance, but had this stress and anxiety and type A motivation and drive to get there. And I just find myself sitting back and going, were the trade-offs worth it on either side of that equation? I don't know. Life in moderation, right? Yeah. There's one in here. It's the richer you become, the less likely people around you are to tell you when you're wrong, crazy, mean, or oblivious. Amazing. Yeah. And that does, it doesn't just go for richness. Like it comes with fame and title and, you know, lots of other stuff, but the effort that one has to put in when they are in a position of power in order to understand their own truth is quite massive. And it's detrimental in a lot of cases. Yeah. Do you watch the show Billions? No. All right. <laughs> I will. I'll pick it up for you, Diggles. I've heard <laughs> there, it's good. It's on my there list. There you go. Well, there's a scene in the most recent episode where this powerful rich guy is running for president and he goes around to get feedback because he wants to be like an authentic guy so he goes he's like i'm willing to hear the hard stuff so he goes around his private equity you know hedge fund and gets feedback from his employees and you you know you can already probably say what the feedback's gonna be it's like you're so amazing that it's intimidating like you intimidate me which makes my job hard because of how great you are (laughs) like stuff like that which is worthless it's so worthless it's great though so um have you heard, when's the last time you heard Warren Buffett drop like a sick burn? Are you ready Ooh. for one? Yeah, please. Buffett says that he often hears rich people talk about how dangerous welfare is for society, creating a generation of moochers relying on food stamps and unemployment benefits. But these same people are leaving their kids a lifetime of a supply of food stamps and beyond. <laughs> <Isn't that> hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. It's exactly right. 
Exactly right. But it's a but, sick burn. It's like it, Buffett it, telling his rich friends, you, you don't know what's coming. You don't know how smart I am. Yeah. Because if you abstract this kind of stuff out, basically it's, I do not believe that people should be provided with, call it money, sustenance, except benefits that they did not earn themselves. That is the thesis statement. But then you need this thing in brackets. It's like, if that's provided by the government, in order for other people to feel good about themselves. <laughs> well, you go back to the Munger quote of you have to, you, the rich dad has to give it to his kids, the rich mom. Um, one last one. And I just think this piece is so good. I, I just should tell you to read it. So spending quick money that you didn't invest much time or energy into earning is the equivalent of a one night stand impulsive and prone to regret old money wants a tax shelter new money wants a lambo the other thing that is the quicker that the wealth is made the higher odds it came from something that will revert just as fast it's two key pieces there mm-hmm. one is if you don't work hard for it it's easy to part ways with it right if this is my you go back to the retirement example i've given this is something that i grinded on for 45 years to get my retirement balance to where it is today, it's really hard to spend that money. If I lucked into some crypto Ponzi scheme and had 3 million bucks show up overnight, those people are the perfect example. They went out and spent on Rolexes and a bunch of worthless nonsense because it's easy to part ways with because you didn't work hard to earn it. Booyakasha. I'm going to take that compounding hard work stuff that you just talked about. All them good words. All them good words, all them elements and stuffs. I'm going to take that. I'm going to parlay it into this blog post that Paul Graham put out called Super Linear Returns. Paul Graham was a co-founder of Y Combinator, the big tech accelerator that Airbnb and Dropbox and Reddit and others, like many Stripe, like a bunch of these companies came out of. Super Linear Returns. What this is about is something that you have brought up plenty of times in this pod is that the human mind is virtually incapable of understanding exponential growth. And how oftentimes we are taught, as he states, you get what you put in. Like in school, you put in this amount of work, you get in this amount of outcome. But when you look at the world, it oftentimes is exponential. Or what's stated here is super linear. And so it breaks it down into two different types of super linear returns. Which I think is kind of a cool breakout because I would, I naturally just go to exponential. But he said you can reduce them to two fundamental causes there's exponential growth and thresholds. I'm going to explain both of those in a less chitty chat. Exponential growth is probably the one that most people will think about. It's the one that I did. So this is when something compounds. Effectively, you keep getting a higher base. If something increases by the same percentage, then you end up getting an exponential curve. That one's easier for most people to understand. The second one around thresholds, also easy to understand actually, but it doesn't naturally come to mind for me. Thresholds is, think about this more as in a sports context. So if you have a sports context and somebody wins, it doesn't matter if you win by one goal or two goals or three goals or 10 goals in soccer. You win and you win. And if you keep winning, it's kind of like what the Giants, the New York football Giants did last season is they kept winning these games, but they were winning them by like two points, three points, right? And so at the end, when they got to the playoffs, they got crushed because it was a bunch of nonsense. But it, but your winning record doesn't matter there. 
And that's what he's saying is like threshold. It's just all you have to do is get just a little bit better. If you're running in track and you run like one second better, like it's you still win. And if you could win every time by a little bit amount. So he's saying those two things can create super linear returns, which is the fundamental uh, like structure that he uses to write the whole thing. So do you see the Giants game on Thursday night? I don't know why you brought this up. It's so painful. Well, so they they were on the old school jerseys from like what seemed like the 80s era. Super sharp jerseys. But dude, I had to turn the thing off. As a Broncos fan, I was just getting flashbacks to the Super Bowl with a backup quarterback mm. put up like 55. It was rough. Really rough. No, what backup quarterback? Only... What backup quarterback was putting up fifty five last? Wasn't Thursday? it Jeff Hostetler? I mean, you're gonna make me no. You, like, no, now you're going back. Live. I'm saying last Thursday, there was a backup <laughs> quarterback last Thursday who was putting up negative fifty five like rushing yards or something. Anyway, you got to bring up old stuff. Super linear no, returns. Going. Keep going. Keep Super linear returns. He names uh, some of the fields that are most likely to have superlinear returns, and there are a few of them that are put out here. But I, I think it's it's kind of cool how diverse it is. Sports, politics, art, music, acting, directing, writing, math, science, starting companies, and investing. Those are fields. It wasn't meant to be a comprehensive list, but it's a set of fields that can, between exponential and thresholds, that like you can start to get your mind's eye as to what he means by superlinear there. And if you take something like acting, what he's saying is that you get these mega superstars. And then you get people that are living in subsistence, subsistence basically, and that's the that's what he means. It's it's basically inequality in action. Not I mean that from a like literal definition standpoint, yeah. not from a, a judgment call standpoint. Because power laws are driving the, exactly. Yeah, of course. Exactly. Here's a quote I love. Read this whole paragraph. The most obvious way to take advantage of super linear returns for performance is by doing exceptionally good work. At the far end of the curve. Incremental effort is a bargain, all the more so because there's less competition at the far end, and not just for the obvious reason that it's hard to do something exceptionally well, but also because people find the prospects so intimidating that few even try, which means it's not just a bargain to do exceptional work, but a bargain even to try to. The short version of this, let's bring it back to investing, one of the fields you mentioned there. We discussed how it's almost structurally set up in the world of finance that it's this complex beast that's so hard and intimidating to get into. Yeah. That's starting to dip your toe when he says bargain. He's saying like at the beginning of a thing, at that like far end at the beginning, it's actually really cheap to try. We 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 discuss putting in whatever you can, even if it seems like a, a wildly small amount, put in whatever you can. And that's when you're getting the biggest bargain. You can make your mistakes, right? You make the errors when it's cheap. And because it's so hard or seemingly so intimidating for people to get involved that you're way ahead of the curve just by trying. You're, so you're naturally inclined to love a write-up like this because there's a lot of ethos because it's Paul Graham of the startup world, right? Yep, true. And I love that. I think I found this persuasive but something that is it takes more mental effort for me to become accustomed to the super linear returns in the startup world in investing and sports 
it kind of clicks with me and always has clicked with me. The, the challenge I have with getting fully on board with this is that it, when we, we talk super linear things and you talk exponential growth, I don't always feel like your hard work gets rewarded. I feel like there are a lot of, I'm going to go back to startups, but there are a lot of great startups that people work really hard and really smart and a few th- pieces of luck almost never fall into place where they don't see the ex- natural return. So that's the challenge I have with this. In investing, I don't really feel that way. In investing, I feel like if you put in the work with a disciplined approach and the right time horizon and your savings rate is at an appropriate level, like your chances of winning, your chances of getting to the place where you get returns in the top tier are like really high, 95 to 99%, depending on where you live and what market you're in. But I don't feel that same way in starting companies. I, I'd push back on that. Okay. Uh, your your general premise, I get. He does talk about luck in here as well and how luck is a factor in all this. Yeah. I would say in the investing world, if you put in the work, you have disciplined approach, you have a long time horizon, you will end up most likely with solid returns, not top tier. Well, let's define top tier. I, I'm really mean like... I'm talking Peter Lynch, Warren Buffett. No, I'm talking top 20 percentile. Like in terms of you beat all the yahoos that are out there trading options that are uh, in and out of funds multiple times a year that have no clear strategy. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I think for, for that, that's true. That's not the you don't get to the super linear part of it by doing that. But you're right that it is such that if you especially if you get to low cost index funds over long time horizon you're not playing within you know funny business that you can get to a place decently solid which is different than something like in the startup world it might not be different than if you just say i'll let's go non-startup but just like small business if you're like i'm gonna open a car wash and you do enough of the work to figure out like the geography that'll make sense. There was a car wash there before. You can probably end up in a similar place. The startup world is a fully different thing because you're shooting because of the nature of venture capital. Like you are shooting for exponential. And so that's a little bit different. But I I hear you broadly, but I push back a little bit. He does talk about luck. Yeah, go go for it. Well, there's two things I need to mention and then I'll let you keep going. First is when you talk about luck, the right supplement here is a book by Michael Mobison called The Success Equation. Have you ever read that one, Douglas? I can't remember. I've read a couple of his books and I, I don't I don't think I've read that one though. So it's untangling skill and luck in business, sports, and investing. And what's so great is he just did the analysis. The easiest thing to talk about here is is sports and what factor luck plays in determining outcomes. And so the headline is like, in hockey, there's a lot more luck, bounce of the puck type activities that determine the outcome and actually who wins the Stanley Cup than there is in basketball, where if you have the two best basketball players in the world, like your chances of winning a seven game series get pretty great. So basketball is driven by skill, hockey's driven by skill and luck. And he breaks it all down for you. It's really awesome. So that could be a good supplement. 
and I forgot my second point. So keep talking. Where, where he talks about luck in here is he says it's one thing that you need. He says it unequivocally. Luck is a factor in all of this, and even more of a factor when you're on your own as a part of, he says, rather than being a part of an organization, but I'd even abstract that out and saying like a part of a system. Like yeah. if you're doing it as an individual, as opposed to being a part of a system, then luck becomes an even bigger factor because it's just like if you buy one stock versus buying an index, luck is a bigger factor because so many things can can come into play to throw off one stock. So he he did, he does uh, pull luck out of there. And the the thing that he mentions there, he says that the solution is to take multiple shots because if you have the the skill side, the discipline side, all of that, then the more at bats effectively that you get, the more likely that luck will fall in your favor at some point. Which he sounds like a guy that has worked with startups his whole life that has <laughs> invested. Yes. In start- I mean, this is <laughs> yeah, this yeah. is a playbook for like venture investing. The- yeah, 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 yeah. It is. I liked it. I it didn't blow me away, but I I liked it. I think he's uh, someone worth paying attention to and like respecting their thoughts. I, I think it's all the stuff. Uh, what you got next? The highlight of the show for me, my boy Howard Marks. Oof. For those who don't know, Howard Marks wrote a book called The Most Important Thing. Great book. Love it so every good. time I read it. Try and read it once a year. Spoiler alert. The most important thing is not one thing. It's like 27 things. And I kind of <laughs> love that he had the hubris to to do that. And it also kind of drives me crazy. Howard Marks is a person who every time he writes his memo, which he writes uh, multiple times a year. Is it is it quarterly? Dougal? It's, it's it, There's no like set cadence. I don't think he just writes okay. them sometimes. And sometimes he writes them only for investors in his firm yeah then yep. sometimes he writes them publicly so every time i read or listen to one of these things i mean you can get the podcast that's how much of a big deal this is it always makes me mad at how smart he is i always <laughs> like i'm apparently a jealous person or something it makes me angry at how smart he is but i got really angry about 18 months ago we talked about it on the show he wrote this memo in sometime in 2021 that was like maybe this time really is different and and growth investing is the way to go and i was just screaming at howard and i'm still frustrated about that was that the one where he was talking to his son yeah that yeah one? he's yeah, like because yeah. his son was more like a venture growth investor still is and he was just trying to be open-minded about a different approach because his style hadn't worked great in a decade plus so that's one of the brilliant things about Howard Marks. He's always looking to poke holes in his long-held philosophies, even if he's held those philosophies for 40 or 50 years. Put that aside, he wrote a book, uh, this memo, it's called Sea Change. Well, it's the follow-up thoughts from a previous memo he wrote called Sea Change. And the standard talking point in investing is when people say this time is different, you should be really concerned because this time is almost never different. And what happens is mean reversion. What's a, how's a better way to say that, Dougal? So if people are saying, um, I guess just trying a, to think of a good example yeah. of the standard talking point. What I throw out is the rationale for why people usually do it. And people usually do it to justify valuations. So it's typically saying, at least in the investing world, it's typically saying, yeah, and 
Of course, valuations are high right now. That's because of, and name one factor. That's typically why. So the rationale of why you say it is important in the difference. Besides, if you just look at the macro environment, ignore where things stand, and you look at like the differences in macro environment, I think that's a, at least what he's trying to state here. Yeah. So I'll do it with NVIDIA stock from memory, right? Ooh, if, okay. If people are going, if I'm going, gosh, every time I've ever seen a significant amount of stocks get over price to sales of 10, their average return for the next year is down 40% and their average return for the next five years is down 80%. So I'm not high on the prospects of NVIDIA right now. And a NVIDIA stockholder comes to me and says, yeah, but like, AI and their chipset and this and that and everything else. Like NVIDIA is a superstar or Tesla is Tesla is not a legacy car maker. It's a software company. Usually what happens with that 90 plus percent of the time is history repeats and the previous fundamentals that have held true for hundreds of years continue to hold true. So when Howard Marks starts his memo telling me, that this time really might be different. I'm, I happen to consume this while driving in my car. I'm literally screaming like Howard, don't do this to me. I don't have the mental capacity to think this critically right now. And I know you're probably going to be right. And I'm not ready. I'm not ready to change my long held beliefs. Right. I have all my biases yelling at me and I'm pissed at Howard. Do you have a similar reaction? No. <laughs> okay. Let me, let me hand the baton to you. So what does he go on to argue and why and do you find it convincing? Because I got to tell you, I'm pretty intrigued with this idea. So if I, if I get rid of the, the phrase, this time is different. Yeah. And discuss some of the structural changes. It's stuff that we've been talking about. What he breaks down is that over the last 40 years, you've had, you've gone from super duper duper high interest rates high double digit style interest rates like to zero yeah to zero to zero interest rates so that happened for 40 years now we are in a world where potentially we may just end up having quote unquote normal interest rates for the foreseeable future and so things that worked where, where someone might say if you take a long enough period of time let's call it 40 years we can say that that is enough cycles to be able to, to say that this strategy lasts in anything. But he's saying this was a time where he went from 18% to zero, effectively like in a straight line down. Now, obviously there were like, yeah, there were dips and increases, but th that that's what he's saying. And so it's more that the structure, the, en the environment that we we're operating in is different. Now, I'll also throw this out. This is why I say, no, I'll throw this out. You know, that Robert Frost quote that I, throw to you before that I enjoy, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it right now, that oftentimes what we see as change are truths going in and out of favor. When you take something like, let's take NVIDIA, we're picking on NVIDIA just because it exists, not because it's actually yeah. NVIDIA. When you take them and you say something like, if you're trading at this multiple, that means that your revenue has to grow by at least 60% for the next yep. 10 years. That still is true. Like that's still the bet. That doesn't change. Yeah. But Howard Marks is saying that the environment in which that's happening is is different. And sometimes that could be the case. Okay. That makes it more well, or less likely that you could do that thing. Yes and no. Actually, right. just yes yeah. and yes. So first, um, I love this point. He's been going around to his investing friends and going, 
tell me the most, I forget the way you phrase it, but like the most impactful thing you think that has happened in the past 50 years in investing. Mm-hmm. And people say like the great financial crisis or whatever. And he goes, no, interest rates, <laughs> interest rate <laughs> movement over 40 years. And he's exactly right. The biggest thing that has shaped the investing lifetimes of the most influential investors today is interest rates going from 18% in 1980 to zero two years ago. Now, interest rates being at 5% right now is so fascinating because, yeah, Dougal's, are we on a 40-year upswing where by the time we get to 2050 or something, interest rates will be at 18%? Or are we just going to, is it a range-bound market where we're going to live in the 5 to 10% range for the next decade and figure things out? regardless what he talks about, I just found so convincing. And like I said, I did not want to find it convincing. So he is he an expert debt bond fixed income investor. Very few people in the world are. Very few people listening to this podcast are, right? So he's going to talk about high yield debt yielding at rates around 9%. High yield debt, the fancy term for that, Dougals, or no, the, the layman's term for that is... Junk bonds junk bonds. I'm not telling anyone listening to the podcast right now that you should go dabble in junk bonds. But if you're Howard Marks and you have expertise there and you can get kind of a guaranteed 9% return in high yield debt, and you're looking at say US equities as a potential trade-off there, and we've talked about this a ton, US equities expected returns over the next seven to 10 years are like they used to be negative two to three percent a year annualized. I don't know exactly what they are now, but they're not great. Like break even is a very real possibility for expected U.S. equity returns. Now you can get better expected equity returns if you go emerging markets, if you buy small value stocks, but all these other things that take more effort. And I think what Howard says at the highest level is simply it's time to start to look at fixed income again and pull that back into your portfolio. Maybe that's an intermediate term, municipal bond. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too much into the details. And this is not investment advice. It's rec- research recommendations. But like, he's right that there are now some opportunities in fixed income that are extremely attractive. It gets to a question that we raised here on the pod a few weeks ago. That was, what is the amount? What's the, like, what's the interest rate amount? or return amount that you could get from fixed income that could make like I bonds. I think we were talking about specifically yep. Yep. that you could get that would make you go a hundred percent there and not into equities. And it's an important one because for us, it's in the double digits, right? Is what we said, like it's somewhere in the double digits. But what he's saying here is just getting a, like a reasonable return based on what equities have done on average in the past which you're going to sit somewhere like the six to 8%, right? Generally range is what he's talking about. I really enjoyed one of the arguments that he raised against what he's saying. He has this list of things. He's like, here are the reasons people could say that what I'm saying is wrong. One of them he raised is that credit instruments don't have much potential for appreciation. I think this is important. Well, his, his argument to his pushback on this, I think is an important point. And what he means by that is he's like, yeah, if I say, like, if you if you buy a bond and that bond pays 8%, 
and you hold it to maturity, you're going to get 8%. Like that, that, that is what you're going to get. Unless, Whereas you could buy. Because we're in junk bond land unless the company goes bankrupt. But Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Assuming that you can hold it to maturity. So the company is around. Yeah. They can make their payments. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Saying, but if you buy an equity, that thing could go up 500%. It could also go down to zero. But you have unlimited upside. So saying, yeah, you lose that. And I love this. There's no denying this. But it should be borne in mind that the downside risk here consists of the opportunity cost of returns foregone, not failing to achieve the return one sought. And that's important. What he's saying is if you're looking to get like 8%, you can get a bond. It's going to tell you you're going to get 8% so long as all the yeah. things that we just named are true. Yeah. Said, so when you say, yeah, but you miss all this upside, he said, yeah, that's what you're saying is that's like returns that you actually didn't say that you needed, that you're giving up. But if your target is X and you can get X, then you've got it. So let's do a thought experiment. I don't know that I can articulate this well on the podcast, but I'm going to try. I go today and I buy a 12-month bond at 8% for 100 bucks, which means in 12 months, I'm going to get $108, right? Current interest rate environment. Let, let's call... Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's call that... That's the simple the math. Tenure, simple math. Yeah. Let's say the 10 years at 5%. Okay? Yeah. So... Mm -hmm. I, I bought this, this payment stream for $108 12 months from now. If interest rates go up from 5 to 8%, a similar bond might then yield $11 worth of interest 12 months out. And so the, the value of my payment stream goes down, that, that bond, because I could get $111 for a similar deal with a similar company if interest rates go up most likely equities i'm making some generalizations here just bear with me for the thought exercise yep. most likely that slows the economy and equities trend down so yep. the the equity the opportunity cost of buying an equity in place of the bond probably goes down in that case and i'm probably pretty happy with my uh 108 dollars in 12 months time even though I could now get $111 for 12 month time. So the, the value of that bond does decrease slightly. But in the reverse case, Dougals, if I buy my 8% bond and the economy blows up and for some reason, interest rates actually get cut, the value of that $108 12 months from now becomes greater because the comparable debt instrument is maybe only gives me $5. Yeah. It, yep. right yeah, and yeah. equities are probably down in that scenario as well because if the economy is struggling enough that the fed gets back to cutting rates when they don't want to do that at all in an inflationary environment that bond makes out i mean that bond's going to be the one of the best investments i could hold in a scenario like that so it's either like pretty good investment that's not a great investment in a rising rate environment or a really good investment that's increasing the value significantly in a lower market. Either way, I think for equities, to, for the expensive equities in the U.S. market to keep up with well-priced, non-bankruptcy <laughs> company type yep. bond. I, I don't know why I can't say it. Um, it. It's just, I just love Howard Marks. He's so smart, man. It's yeah, I like really. I like how. Man. How he bottom lined this at the end. And one of it, one of the bottom lines touches on what you just said. He said the way he bottom line it is 
that credit investors can access returns today that are one, highly competitive versus the historical returns on equities, two, exceed many investors' required returns or actuarial assumptions, and three, are much less uncertain than equity returns. I don't know why I just didn't read his summary, Diggles. So he he talks about going into a board for a nonprofit who only needs to average 6% a year. And two years back, you're jumping through all these hoops. Maybe your uh, asset allocation is tilting towards private equity. Who knows what's going on? Now he can walk in pretty competently and be like, my company, Oak Tree, can get you 6% returns with very little risk. Like, this is a slam dunk. This is the easiest nonprofit portfolio we manage all, you know, at this point in time, if you only need 6%. It's not for the average person to go and read. But if you want to, if you want to see a different perspective and some second and third level thinking, love Howard Marks's memos. So powerful. I have a question for you. I'm not, I'm not claiming you'll do it in the next week, but you, as much as anyone I know, I think have been a 100% equities advocate, which has all sorts of challenges and is not for your uh, average investor. Did this memo make you think you need to do some more research or a deep dive on adding some uh, fixed income exposure? Well, so what it made me want to look at is what rates are for corporate bonds right now and like what's available. But it, so here's the deal. I have, when I, when I look at the stuff that I consider to be investing, it's all equities. Mm-hmm. But then there's the stuff that I have in what I'd call savings and savings with different time horizons. Like yeah. the shortest time horizon stuff is more like working capital, like what a company would consider to be working capital. And then I have things that have slightly longer time horizons and then things with longer time horizons than that. And what I'd mostly be looking, so some people, some of that is in treasuries. And so some people might say, yeah, that's part of your investing portfolio. I'm like, to me, it's not, it's part of my savings. Like I view it as effectively cash Um, because I'm not buying five-year bonds, by the way, like it's much shorter duration than that. And so I will look at what corporates are like. It definitely is making me do that over this next weekend because I'm, I'm curious like what is what's sitting at 9%? I remember there were things that were sitting at like 7 8% about a year ago. And so I am curious as to what's where some of the the corporate bonds are sitting out of curiosity if nothing else. Yeah, it's things like Transdime. Ooh, I mean I buy tra- Transdime yeah, all is. all day. Are you looking right you're now? Gonna have, you're going to have fun with that. Um, I, that was the name I saw this week when I was doing some of this research, but I forget the, the interest rate on that coupon, but it was in one of these ETFs that was aggregating, Mm. uh, different corporate bonds, which I would argue is, I mean, my favorite thing, if I'm investing in debt would be to have Howard Marks do it for me. Uh, but that's not quite realistic. The, the other approach I'd advocate for strongly is great diversification. So if one or two of these bonds go out, you know, I wouldn't want to buy the, B-rated um, individual company I, stuff. I don't know. They... I mean, I'll look. I'll look. But <laughs> I, if I'm just if I just take what he's doing, I may shift 100 percent of my portfolio. If I see AMC bonds paying anything above seven percent, getting everything. If I could just give it to their CEO, just his debt alone, his pantsless debt, 
I would do it. Guys, Diggles is joking. Don't touch any AMC debt of any kind because it's going to zero. <laughs> that was a meaty one. Okay. That was very meaty. What's in your fishbowl? I'm going to hit on two parts of one company. They're, they're unrelated pieces of news, but I'm going to put it together because they're both about Microsoft. So two things that came across my desk this week with Microsoft. One is I didn't realize how acquisitive Microsoft had been. Acquisitive being they've bought a whole bunch of companies. There was this Wall Street Journal piece called Microsoft Activision Buy Extends Nadella's Decade of Deals. Nadella is their CEO. Yep. I just, I'm just, this is a super quick hit. This said, since he's been in charge, so Nadella took over as CEO 2014, he struck more than 326 deals worth over $170 billion. Wow. Some of the notables here are LinkedIn for $26 billion, Nuance Communications for $16 billion, ZeniMax, which is a video game company, ZeniMax Media for $7.5 billion. And now you've got Activision for about $70 billion. Wow. I just like, I hadn't realized it, right? And so just about a decade. So that's that's one thing. The other thing that came across my desk, which is a follow-up to something that's been going on for a while, is Microsoft owes a whole bunch of taxes, allegedly. Allegedly. And, yeah, allegedly. <laughs> Who knows if this is true or not? But what I what I love about this, so companies, big companies like Microsoft owing taxes or trying to have stuff overseas is like not new or novel. What I enjoyed about this one is what they did, allegedly, was about 20 years ago, there's this factory in Puerto Rico where that they sold their IP to or transferred Microsoft's IP to. This is a factory of like 80 employees or something like that, which made Windows NT compact disks that like has all of Microsoft's IP. That is so blatant. Like, I don't know, but the, I think the thing is that according to what I was reading this from ProPublica is that if you go back 20 years, the government was so lax that the IRS looked at it and were like, yeah, that looks fine. Like that was, so it was more or less, they were doing what the government was cool with, I think at that time. And then a few years later, the government's like, is that cool? Like that is so obvious. Like there's no other reason that this 80 employee Windows NT, like compact disk factory, would have your intellectual property. Like it just does not make any sense ex- unless you're trying to avoid taxes. Mm-hmm. I don't, that's a really tough one. I don't know that what's fair because different political regimes had different attitudes towards some of that. And Microsoft's tax returns should get as much scrutiny as anyone else's. I mean, that's, one of the largest companies in the world has been for decades. It's just kind of funny that it appears to be have given a thumbs up a while back, but now maybe that's changing. Well, and and look, in the end, you fairness, et cetera. Yeah, wow, whatever. In the end, what you can look at is this. So apparently it's $29 billion is the amount the IRS says that's owed. From what I'm reading here, that's probably going to end up being something more in the teens of billions that if they end up paying something, they're going to have to pay. This is almost 20 years old, 10 to 20 years, some somewhere in that, like the yeah. full period in which they were doing this. 
that is a very solid rated loan from the government. I'm sure that Microsoft got that has now turned it into a multi-trillion dollar company. Like Microsoft will fight this thing and also be like, cool. Like that is oh, dude, well yeah. worth it. Well worth it. The change might fall out of their pockets on the way to DC. It, yeah, exactly. Just accidentally. Like Nadella could pay this himself and still feel fine. Maybe not. That might be a little aggressive. Yeah, that's a little aggressive. So I was trying to find uh, this this talking point so I could give credit to it, but I can't find it. I want to summarize one thing that I found hilarious, but it also speaks to the challenges of investing. It, it was talking about the rising rate environment, and specifically with pensions, and how the hottest place for pensions to put money to increase expected returns has been private equity. And what private equity has been doing is buying a lot of these mom and pop shops like a HVAC contractor, rolling those up, adding leverage, adding debt, and then flipping them to go somewhere else. That's how they got their high returns. And the reason that private equity had high returns over the last decade or two is because you were living in a place where that debt was so cheap that it was like an easy game to run that flip shop. And so now just as these endowments have allocated more and more of their money to private equity to do those roll-ups and flips, the roll-ups and flips no longer make sense because the price of debt has changed. And so what does that mean to your expected returns for private equity? It means they're going to suck, but it means they're going to suck as soon as the large amounts of capital arrive. It's just a classic chasing returns, yeah. uh, not understanding mean revision type story. And it, it was so well articulated that I wanted to relay it. If you find it, send it over. You can throw it in the Substack. Yeah. I Sounds will. cool. Yeah. All right. One last thing for me. I continue to be fascinated by home prices. So here's a breakdown of the type of house you could afford based on interest rate changes over the past couple of years. At a 3% mortgage, if you could afford a $1.2 million house, that's about a $5,000 a month payment. Today at 8%, you can afford a house for $700,000. You lost half a million wow. dollars. Wow. Half a million dollars in purchasing power to still have a $5,000 month payment. A more typical example, a 3% mortgage, say you could afford $3,000 a month. That's roughly 700K in a 3% environment. Today, that's a $400,000 house. To get that same three thousand, wild. Isn't that wild? wild? <laughs> like, and people in most wouldn't places, intuit that. Naturally, you wouldn't intuit that. No, it's that can't. big. Like it, it's drastic. To say I used to be able to afford a one point two million dollar house, and now I can afford a house for seven hundred thousand dollars. Now, what happens here is people creep this. Their confirmation bias of when they were looking at homes for one point two million kind of stays there. And then they become house poor because they end up with a mortgage payment that's like six or seven thousand dollars a month when what they can truly afford is probably five thousand dollars a month. But yeah. what hasn't happened yet is prices haven't really come down. Part of that's because there's not much supply. But like just I've been saying this for months now, something has to change because wages are not climbing. It, to give you an example of the the $1.2 million purchase price at 3% is a $5,000 a month mortgage. It's almost $9,000 a month 
if you at an eight percent rate. Yeah. So like people are making three thousand dollars a month more in the past two years. No, and part of the inventory point is something we hit on, I think maybe even a few months ago. It was around who we don't know how this is going to play out, but one of the concepts that we threw out is that, and I saw something about this, I think actually this morning, I may have also seen something come across like this, is how Gen Xers are as house rich, like their home equity is like the highest it's ever been. Yeah. And they are also cash poor. And when you put those two things together, now I didn't see like the specific numbers on the cash poor and like how they calculated that this morning, but just if you take it conceptually and Mm -hmm. play it out, one of the places that gets to is at some point with student loan payments coming back, credit card debt being up, you need cash. How do you get it? Yeah. You might have to sell your house. And but they're resistant because selling your house right now is, especially if you're planning on buying another one is like a, it's expensive to end up doing that. So crazy talk here. So here's another way to look at the same rate movement from John Burns uh, research and consulting. So they looked at uh, the number of households that would qualify to buy a home, uh, $400,000 home. And in a 3% environment, that's 50 million households in America. At a 7% environment, that's only 27 million households. And at an 8% environment, it's only 22 million households. So you have maybe 28 million households that used to qualify to buy the average-ish home in America that no longer qualify. Like they, they just... Yeah. have been priced out of the housing market assuming they need interest to buy it or debt to buy it and most do which for the, for that many households you you do yeah. and right, yeah there's so many variables <laughs> that are sitting out there right now it's it's such a it's a fascinating time in like a intellectually fascinating way and also just as a participant in the economy way it's a i don't know what to do exactly when it comes to being with my economic hat on Listen, I didn't even bring it. I didn't even bring all the credit card stats. <laughs> Delinquencies are up. Carrying costs for like Discover credit cards way up. I mean, it's it looks bleak out there for the U.S. consumer as it it continues to look bleak out there. I should say, yeah. To all, all the best to all of us. May the odds be ever in our favor. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for listening this week, guys. Please uh, review and share the show with a friend. Um, hit skippydoogles.com for all things skippydoogles skippydoogles at gmail.com for listener mail peace